for Amanda. <laughs> All right, well, we guys, we get to start our new friendship series today. Um, we started it on Wednesday in, in a small group setting. Uh, so if you weren't here Wednesday, we asked this question of, are friends necessary? Are they necessary? And you guys got to talk about it in your small groups. And today, we're going to talk about why friends aren't just nice. They're necessary, okay? So friends aren't just nice, they're necessary. That's going to be my conclusion, and I'm going to try to back it up uh, and, and explain why that is. So we're going to start kind of, where should we start? That's a good question. I think we should start with this. It's not in my notes. Um, I think we should start with the presupposition that this topic may be one that is difficult for more than a few of us. That friendship is something, my, my, I have a presupposition that it's something that, whether we admit it or not, it's something that we all long for. And I think that we would admit that it's something that's not easy to do. It's not easy to, to have friends that are deep, that really get us, that really connect with us on, on more levels um, than just surface level. And it's something that I think we long for. And I think that that's a good thing. I think we should long for it. And so we get to study it for the next number of weeks and hopefully um, not just grow in our understanding of it, but actually grow in the actual application of it, uh, particularly on Wednesday nights when we're here at church with a group of friends. I know that you have friends at school, you have friends on your sports teams, um, you have friends in your neighborhoods. Um, so this is one area where we would meet some friends and get to go deep in those friendships. And so my hope is that we do that as a group. So friendship is the cure to a certain disease, okay? And that disease is loneliness. Mother Teresa, do you guys know who that is? Okay, Mother Teresa died... Um, I don't know the year. It was, it was back in probably 1997, 8, something around there. Um, but she was, she's probably the most famous of, of our era, Catholic nun. And the reason she's famous is because she lived in Calcutta, India. It's funny, I abbreviated it I-N in my notes. So Calcutta, Indiana. No, not Indiana. It's Calcutta, India, okay? Um, and if you know anything about Indian society, you know that it's based on a caste system where you have the most important people at the top and then you work your way down to the very bottom. Anybody know what the bottom is called? <laughs> Some might call them that, but the technically no. I heard it over here. The untouchables, okay? Technically, they are called the untouchables, okay? And they believe in reincarnation, and so they believe that if you're born an untouchable, it's because of something you did in a previous life, and so there's no reason why you should be treated better than you are, right? You've done something to deserve this, essentially. And she didn't believe that, and so she spent her whole life ministering to the untouchables, and here we're talking about people with leprosy, people uh, with fatal diseases, people who'd been abandoned, um, who couldn't care for themselves, who were eating trash, who were who living in, in the gutters, and she took care of them, and she didn't care about herself, and she didn't care about anything that happened to her, and so that's why she's so famous and amazing. But her quote on this topic is this. After seeing all this disease and all this pain and suffering 
She says the worst disease is not leprosy, AIDS, or cancer, but loneliness. And that was the disease that she was actually seeking to cure, that she was there to these untouchables as someone who was reaching out to them, willing to be their friend. Now, this is supported by science, okay? Um, If you look at the scientific evidence as to what loneliness does in us, um, there's a number of things that can increase your odds for an early death, okay? So, for example, air pollution. If you live in the city with lots of air pollution, it increases your odds for an early death by 5%. Uh, obesity, being you know extremely overweight, it increases your odds for an early death by 20%. Excessive drinking increases your odds f- uh, for an early death by 30%. But they've discovered that loneliness increases your odds for an early death by 45%. That loneliness actually results in an earlier death. Um, more studies, okay, so I read an article uh, out of a psychology journal called The Dangers of Loneliness, published in Psychology Today. And um, it says that all sorts of mental and physical problems can be caused by loneliness. In fact, evidence has been growing that when our need for social relationship is not met, we fall apart mentally and even physically. Um, It talks about how it takes a serious toll on our health, it erodes our arteries, creates high blood pressure, and it even undermines learning and memory. Looking at students uh, your age, loneliness is one of the main reasons behind high school dropouts. Why people drop out of high school is a lack of connection or friends in their high school. Um, Loneliness is oftentimes the thing that precedes people going into depression or alcoholism. Loneliness increases the risk of suicide. Loneliness causes people to feel more stress, more than someone who would be in the exact same situation but has friends alongside them, which causes higher blood pressure, rougher sleep, less rest, less health. And despite this, so despite the fact that science supports this idea that loneliness is is dangerous for us in a sense, the trend in our modern society is that more and more people are living alone. Okay, so if you were to take a survey back in 1950, it would show that 4 million Americans live in a single-person household. In other words, they live alone. That would be 10% of all people live alone. So whether it's your great-grandmother whose husband has passed away and all her kids are grown up, or whether it's a single guy out of college living by himself, 10% of all people lived alone in 1950. Today... 32 million Americans live alone, which is up to 28% of all households. So it's on the rise, okay? So you see that this independence that is valued in Western and American society uh, of making it on your own has affected the way that we live. So we, we are more prone to want our own house, our own apartment, our own flat, our own whatever, and no roommates, and, 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 and to be alone and by ourselves. In cities, it's estimated that more than 40% of people are living alone. And in some cities, like Washington, D.C. and New York, it's over 50% of people live by themselves in an apartment. Okay, so despite the fact that loneliness causes, it can be dangerous for you, we in our society are moving towards a more and more alone society. But you don't have to live alone to be lonely. Okay, so further studies talk about how loneliness isn't just something that is for people who are by themselves, 
you can actually be lonely in a crowd, right? A lot of you guys have experienced this. You know this. You, you know what it's like to be at a school surrounded by people. Like you're around people all day long, and yet you're lonely. It says that loneliness, in another article um, called Loneliness and the Mobile Phone, um, it says, loneliness is an emotion experienced by an individual who wishes for a level of contact unlike the one currently encountered. So they're not getting what they need. The multiplicity of social relations does not matter, but the quality of them is important. In other words, it doesn't matter how many people you interact with on a daily basis or how many people you see. What matters is the quality of the interaction. Are you interacting on a real level with people? If you're not, you're lonely even when you're surrounded by people. Okay? So, um, I think that all of this has a lot to do with friendship, okay? It has to do with whether or not uh, we are lonely. It has to do with whether or not we are experiencing real interactions. And I would argue that real interactions are interactions that take place between friends and not just acquaintances or people that are around your school. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to do a series on friendship was because I had an interaction with a girl at Hubble Middle School, a girl who I noticed sits alone, okay? She sits alone every day day in, day out. And so I went and I, you know, would say, hey, how's it going? She's pretty friendly. Um, and at one point, I asked a question, which I, I'm not sure I should have asked, because it, it probably was touching on something that was difficult. But I just said, why do you sit alone? Why do you sit alone every day? You know, there's people all over here, you know. Why don't you sit at one of these tables with your friends? And she said, I like it better this way. I'd rather be alone. I want to sit by myself. And so the question is, do you think that's true? Do you think it's true that she really, in her deepest heart of hearts, likes it better sitting alone in the cafeteria? And that's one of the things that got me thinking about friendship and this, this desire, this longing that we, I think, all have within us and whether or not... Um, we should go in and talk about it. So that's why we're talking about it. And so we're going to do a quick review of what we talked about on Wednesday. And then we're going to go into a couple more points as to why I think the Bible teaches that friends aren't just nice, but they're actually necessary. So who can tell us what we talked about on Wednesday? What Bible passage did we use on Wednesday? General area, yeah. Genesis, Genesis yeah. Genesis 2, and in general, Noel, what did Genesis 2 say? Uh, it's not the there you go, right? So in Genesis 2, we see that God creates all of creation, and you guys know the story. It says it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and the plants are good, and the animals are good, and the sky is good, and the water is good, and everything's good, and, and he creates all of it good, and then at the end, he says, it's not good that man is alone. Well, he goes on to talk about why he creates a woman, right? And we've got marriage. But really, what we're seeing here is that there is something essential to who we are as humans in perfection. Remember, this is before Adam sins. This is before Eve sins. So the fall hasn't happened. There's no sin. The world is perfect. That in a perfect world, humans need friends. They need a relationship. They need someone alongside them. And you notice, Adam, he had God, right? God was there. And yet, for some reason, it was not enough. 
It wasn't enough for Adam just to have a relationship with God in the garden, that it was bad that he was alone, and so God created another human being. So we're going to see why that is. Why was it not good for Adam to be alone? Okay? So there's our passage, Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. All right, so, well, it's not good because of who God is. So let's start with that. Um, what do you guys know about the Christian understanding of God? What is basic to what the Bible teaches us about who God is? What do you guys think? Basic stuff. Who is God? Yeah. Awesome. God's the creator. Good. Keep going. Yeah, right. Uh, he doesn't tolerate sin. Okay, so God doesn't tolerate sin. Yeah, he can't tolerate sin because he's holy. Good. Yeah. Yeah, he's perfect. Created everything perfect. What about the nature of who God is? Yeah. The Trinity. Yeah, so something about this Trinity thing, right? So the Trinity means that God is three persons in one God, right? This is one of those things that it really doesn't matter how many degrees you get in life. You'll never really be able to explain it perfectly, okay? But here's where this idea of Trinity comes from, okay? So the idea of the Trinity comes from the fact that the Bible says that the Father is God in Philippians. It says that Jesus is God in Titus. And it says that the Holy Spirit is God in Acts, right? So we've kind of got this thing where we've got these three things, the three people being called God. But then all throughout the Old Testament, it teaches us that God is one, right? We only have one God. We worship one God. So somehow we have to make sense out of the fact that we've got three persons who are called God in the Bible, and yet there's one God. Okay, so we understand that God is three, God is one. Um, and as we look at this relationship, we see that the three persons aren't created. God didn't create Jesus. John 1.1 1, 1 says that Jesus was in the beginning. He was with God from the very beginning. Okay, Not, neither was the Holy Spirit created. Um, teaches us that uh, there is a love between God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. Okay, so Jesus talks about his love for God. God talks about his love for Jesus. Um, just think about the baptism. Jesus' baptism is one of the places where we have the whole Trinity showing up on the scene, right? Jesus is baptized. Heavens open up. Dove uh, comes down or, or the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we've got God's voice from heaven, the Father. We've got the Holy Spirit coming down. We've got Jesus there. This is God. The whole picture is God. All of it right there. And not only that, but we know that God is eternal. So God has been around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Just do yourself a favor and think about that for a minute and give yourself a, a mind exercise. Just think about that. Before everything, God was forever. That forever and ever and ever. Before anything was created, before um, there was a speck, a molecule, God existed and he existed in eternity. Have you ever wondered what God was doing all that time? Forever? <laughs> what was he doing all that time? Well, I would argue that because of our understanding of the Trinity, and because we know that God is love, I think that God was enjoying a loving relationship with himself for eternity. 
For all of time, God was in relationship with himself. That the Father was loving and pouring out his love toward the Son. And the Son was loving and pouring out his love toward the Father. And that the Holy Spirit, actually theologians think, is is the love. That the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love between the Father and between the Son. And for all of time, God was pouring out love towards himself. For all of time. Before creating. So why does that matter? Well, It's not good for us to be alone because our God is a God of relationship. That he exists in relationship with himself. That is who he is at the essence of who he is. And it matters because of who we are. In other words, who are we? It says in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So if God is this eternal relationship with himself, and then he creates us to be in his image, he creates us to have a desire and a longing and and a need for relationship deep within who we are. Does that make sense? So at the essence of who we are, we need to be in relationship because we're in God's image And God is a relational God. God exists in relationship, at least with himself, and after creation with us. The lack of relationship, um, the problems that exist when we don't have this relationship, can be seen in, in one interesting area, which is solitary confinement. Do you guys know what that is? This is a form of prison, okay? That America, actually, being the great country we are, came up with it. And it's where you take a prisoner and you stick them in a dark, dank cell by themselves for an extended period of time. No one to interact with, no one to talk to, okay? And it was heralded as this is the new form of prison because this is really going to reform people because it's so awful. They're going to change and then we can release them back out into society. Problem is, didn't work. Okay, they found, as they studied these prisoners, this is what they found. This is from 100 years ago. A considerable, considerable number of the prisoners fell, even after a short confinement, into a semi-fatuous condition, from which it was next to impossible to arouse them. And others became violently insane. Others still committed suicide. While those who stood the ordeal better were not generally reformed and in most cases did not recover sufficient mental activity to be of any subsequent service to the community. All that to say, they stick these guys in a cell all by themselves, thinking it'll change them and make them be able to go back into society, and it does the complete opposite. They actually find that sticking people alone in a cell, even for a short amount of time, causes permanent harm to their mind. This study was from 100 years ago, and so a modern psychologist thought, I don't buy it, I'm gonna go check it out, right? He thought that what these prisoners were doing is that they were faking it so that they could not have to go through solitary confinement anymore, right? Just saying, oh, don't put me back in there. It's awful. I, I, can't, I can't take it. And so he went and he studied, because America was still practicing this in the last 20 years, um, he went and studied people who'd been put in solitary confinement. And he expected to find that when he studied these prisoners that they would uh, hype up the problem of solitary confinement so they just wouldn't have to go into it anymore, make it sound worse than it was. What he found was a complete opposite. He found that prisoners tended to downplay it. 
they'd say stuff like, oh yeah, I know other people can't take it, but I'm fine, it doesn't really bother me. And they all kind of downplayed it like it was no big deal. But as he dug deeper, they started talking about the ways things started coming out about how they've been driven insane simply by being put in a room by themselves. And their thoughts started changing and they started thinking about how everything that was being done to them was some big conspiracy and that even the, hearing the toilets flush around them and the, the water going through the pipes became excruciating and it drove them insane and it made them think that the people were doing it just to drive them insane. And even small things like an itch, something that wouldn't really bother you out in society, in solitary confinement was enough to drive a person insane. Just, just small discomforts would make them go mad. And they would think that they were being drugged and they couldn't control their thoughts. And, and all of this to say that science supports this idea that we, at the core of our beings, need to be in relationship with other people. That we weren't made to be alone and by ourselves. So you might ask this question. You might ask, well, isn't it enough just to have a relationship with God? Right? So we talked about that for a second, but let's look a little more. Were we really created to have a relationship with people and not just God? Like, isn't that the perfect friendship? Isn't God enough for us as human beings? Why would we need to have outside friends? So let's look at that topic. Well, I would say it's not good for us to be alone because God teaches we must love our neighbor. So you guys know that when Jesus came, he said the two greatest commandments are, what are they? It's number one. Two greatest commandments are love God God and love your neighbor, right? So love God and love your neighbor. So first of all, we need to reflect on the fact that these are commandments. God commands us to love him and to love our neighbor. Now, I think that this doesn't just mean like do good stuff to your neighbor or be, be nice when you be friendly, you know, when you see people. I think love of neighbor really means to enter into relationships that are lasting, into friendships, to be a friend to other people, okay? And it's a command that God gives us. Well, why would God command us to love our neighbor? I think it has to do with this. In 1 John, we read, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What this is telling us is that these two commands, to love God and to love your neighbor, are intertwined in a way that they cannot be separated. That we don't just love God and our neighbors, we love God by loving our neighbors. Or another way to put it according to this passage is that the love of God is not in you, if you don't love your neighbors. That our desire for friendship, to extend love to the people around us and to go deep into relationship with them is evidence of the fact that we truly love God. And that if we don't desire to have these friendships and these relationships and love other people, it's evidence of the fact that we don't love God and that God's love is not in us. Because God created people to be loved by him. And when we love God, we also desire to love other people. Well, why are these commanded? Why would this be so important? I think there's another reason. 
And that other reason is in this passage. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, it says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What does this talk about? Let's look at it sentence by sentence. First sentence. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So in other words, you could apply that to yourself, right? You could hear that and hear him saying, be careful, Tommy, be careful, Izzy, be careful, Elise, that you not have an evil, unbelieving heart. But he's not talking to Tommy or Izzy, Elise. He's talking to Tommy and Izzy and Elise and everybody else in the church. He's saying, take care, all of you, that you not have an evil, unbelieving heart. And the way to take care of yourself is exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, the way you can guard your heart is by, as a group, looking out for each other. As a group saying to each other, I see a sin in your heart that's really dangerous if you don't address it. And encouraging everyone daily not to give in to the deceitfulness of sin. And if you do that, notice he goes to this plural we. For we, Christians, have come to share in Christ. We are really Christians if, if indeed, we, meaning all of us, hold our original confidence firm to the end. What he's saying there is that for Christians to stay Christians and to really be Christians all the days of their life, it's done in community. It only exists in the church. It's not something that you can do by yourself. And so I would say that monks who went and lived in a cave for long periods of life missed the point. You guys have read about those in your history books maybe, right? That, that these monks went and lived in caves or li- climbed up on a pole for long periods of time. I think that's an exercise in missing the point of what the Christian life is. The Christian life is to be com- done in community. That we together are supposed to go about our life in community. And so I think this, these are the reasons why friendship is not just nice. It's absolutely necessary. Okay? So... Um, If I was to sum it all up into a sentence, I would say this. Friendship is necessary because... uh, hmm, Let's try that again. Friendship is necessary because it is essential to who God is. He's a trinity in relationship. Which means it is essential to who we are because we're created in God's image. And because scripture teaches that it is the evidence that God's love is in us, because if we don't love our neighbor, then it shows we don't really love God. And it is the means by which we are to persevere in our faith. It's, it's the only way for us to stay Christians our whole lives is in community with one another. Therefore, friendship is absolutely necessary to who we are. So let's close with a couple of implications. What does this mean for you guys? Implication number one is this. Implications. Implication number one is this. No! No, push the wrong button. Wait, I got it. Got it. Does this button do anything? No, it doesn't. Help, help. Somebody push play. They already saw all the answers. (laughs) 
so much for dra dramatic delivery. Okay, here we go. If God gave us this need, we can be sure he wants to fill it. This is really good news. If God made us this way, that relationship is foundational to who we are at the core of our being, God's going to fulfill that desire. Right? In Matthew, Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, if you fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give you exactly what you need? God knows that you have this need for relationship. And if God knows you have this, not only does he know it, he made you with it, it is his pleasure to fulfill it in you. He wants to give you good, deep, meaningful, lasting friendships. So that's implication number one. Implication number two, if we ignore our need for friends or claim we don't really need it or want it, this is a serious problem. That it's a serious problem to say, I don't need friends. I'm good on my own. I think what we see from 1 John and from Hebrews is that when we do that, we're living outside God's will. We're showing that God's love is actually not in us and we're disobeying God. So it is a serious topic. It's not something we should do lightly. And finally, I think we should evaluate ourselves. So how do we evaluate ourselves? Well, I have two questions for you. First, I don't think we evaluate ourselves by counting our friends. I had us do that the other night during small groups, and, and, and the point wasn't for you to look around and say, oh, more friends than that guy. No, that wasn't the point. The point was for us to think about friends and think about what friendship really is, and then to think about, again, do I really have real meaningful friendships, which is where we're going to talk about later on. So I don't think we say, I have lots of friends, ergo, I'm doing a really good job. Or, I have no friends, ergo, I'm not doing a good job. That's not the point. I think the first thing we need to do is look at our desires. Look at what we long for. Do we long to have good friendships? Are our desires in the right place? Do we want friends? If you do, I think that means that that's a good thing. You're, you're recognizing who God made you to be. You are made for a relationship. But then secondly, I think we should evaluate ourselves, not by how many friends we have, but by how we spend our time when it comes to friendship. How do we spend our time when it comes to friendship? Does the way we spend our time suggest that we want friends? Are we pursuing friendship? Does the way we spend our time suggest that we really believe God commands us to love our neighbors and we're actually trying to live out that command. You might say, do you rush home, or sorry, do you rush through the school day avoiding interactions with other people? That might be a good question to ask yourself. When I'm at school, am I more concerned about who I keep out than who I let in? Am I trying to protect my identity and just make it through? Or... Do I open myself up to who God puts in my path so that I might love those who God puts in my path? Or at the end of the school day, do I rush into my home and go to my room and stay there until dinner and then eat my quick dinner and go back to my room? Does the way that I live my life after school suggest that I actually want friendships? I actually want relationships. On the weekends... Do I sleep till noon and then lounge around the house until I get to go back to bed? Or do I do things that suggest that I actually want to have friendships or have relationships? When I come to church, 
Do I have the phone right here so that I can avoid talking to whoever might come near me? Or do I embrace that slightly awkward feeling of sitting there by myself with my phone in my pocket waiting to interact with someone? And do I just wait to interact with someone or wait to, for them to interact with me? Or do I actively look at who else is sitting alone and go and say, hey, how's it going? It's been a while. What are, what are you doing today? Do I actively pursue friendship? Do I actively pursue loving my neighbor? And I'm going to end with this statement. Would we still say that we were chasing after friends if we didn't count texting, Snapchatting, or Facebooking as real friendship? If we removed the phone and if we removed Snapchat, texting, and Facebook, and then all the other things, would we, because I think my, my presupposition is that some of you would say, well, some of that's true of me, but I'm really communicating that whole time. I'm, I'm talking to people. I'm in friendships. I might argue later on, prepare yourself, that that's not real friendship. Um, but assuming that I might go that direction, if we were to remove those things, would you still say that you were pursuing real relationships, real friendships? So I encourage you guys to evaluate yourselves this week as we think through those things. We're going to continue in the topic. Um, just so you know, we're going to head to characteristics of real friends. That's what's coming up. We're going to talk about characteristics of fake friends. That's coming up. Um, we're going to talk about how God is our friend, how Jesus ought to be our best friend, and we're going to talk about how to make friends. Because I'm really good at it, and I'm just going to teach you guys all, all this stuff. So, No, not true. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. All right, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to this uh, topic in your word. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you will give us hearts to evaluate ourselves to not condemn ourselves, not to condemn other people around us, but to ask you and your spirit to speak to us and give us obedience in our hearts that we might repent and respond appropriately and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.